Good evening. Welcome to Grace. I am the this evening's song service leader, and we are going to be starting off with... I just drew a blank. 22C. 22C will sing all the stanzas of number 22. For next song, number 98C, Sing a New Song to Jehovah. Number 98C, we'll sing all three stanzas as well.
And for our next song this evening, number 23B, Psalm 23, Selection B, we'll sing all five stanzas. Last song this evening, number 29B, Psalm 29, Selection B, Now unto Jehovah, ye sons of the mighty. And let's sing the first, third, and fourth. First, third, and the last of number 29. Good evening. Uh, brief announcement before we begin. Um, in the announcement bulletin, there is note of a chili cook-off later in the month. If you anticipate being able to attend that, there will be a sign-up sheet on the table in the narthex. Please uh, sign up just to uh, assist them in planning for that. Beloved, the Lord calls us this evening to worship. 
with these words of Jesus from John chapter 4, where he says, The hour is coming and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. That we might worship in spirit and in truth. Let us join our hearts together, asking the Lord for that which we need in a moment of silent prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to gather in your presence without fear and with joy. For we know this has been your work, who have drawn us here by your Spirit and who is equipping us that we might know you and love you and serve you and glorify you. We pray that your work would be evident among us this evening, that you would make it our delight to give you honor and glory, and that all that is done here might be done in a way that gives evidence of your Spirit's leading. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 394. Number 394. the Nicene Creed, which you can find in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 852, page 852. 
joining our confession with that of the saints from, out, from throughout the ages. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. psalm selection this evening is Psalm 111. What you can't see in your translation, English translation, is that this is an acrostic. Kids, you remember what those are? An acrostic means that the first line in the original starts with the next letter in the alphabet. So it goes in, in Hebrew ABC, essentially. Um, but ultimately, this is a song of wonder. The psalmist is leading God's people in standing in awe at the goodness and the graciousness and the faithfulness of our God. He calls them to recognize how good and how gracious God is and to respond with worship, with praise. Ultimately, then, this is a song that we can only truly enjoy in Christ, and that points us forward to Christ as the pinnacle of the faithfulness that God has shown to us. It's a wonderful psalm for the church, uh, which ages ago led God's people in looking forward to the coming of Messiah. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart 
in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithfulness and just, or faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. The more we come to know the Lord our God, the more we see the truth that God is praiseworthy and that he ought to be worshipped. So let's take up this psalm. Uh, from Selection B, uh, Psalm 111B, and we're going to sing the first three stanzas and then the last through, the last two. The first three and then the last two. As we come before the Lord in prayer, um, we took note of a number of uh, prayer concerns this morning. In addition, on our um, announcement bulletin, we are called to pray for um, the work in Toronto, Ontario, under Reverend Tony Zeckveld. Um, That's been a long, hard work, in part because being in the city, it's a transient population, um, Brother Zeckveld has been 
ministering, especially to kind of marginal folks, people that are pretty poor, often immigrants. Uh, and that's, that's a hard work. It's labor-intensive. But it's amazing to watch how the Lord is at work among those who come. Also, Reform Mission Services um, asks that we pray for a team leaving to serve in the Dominican Republic. They're going to be working in Nagua, uh, Santa Rosa, and Sabana Grande de Boya. Um, so please keep them in your prayers. And then finally, I would, uh, would note that with us being into a new year, newly elected officials are taking up their duties. Um, if you watch the news at all, you'll see that it's been interesting already. Uh, those whom God has set over the state and over the nation desperately need his help and his guidance. Many of them don't know that. We need to pray for them. So let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we give thanks to your holy name that you have revealed to us who you are and what you have done. We are blessed beyond all measure because we know the one who made it all and who superintends it all. And because we know that you sent your Son to redeem us and draw us near. Father, were it not for that, we would have no hope. We would have no help whatsoever, for we look to men and we see how quickly they fail. We look to our own strength and we see how quickly it falters. We can't even trust our own perceptions and desires. Because time and again they lead us astray. Father, we desperately crave your help, your faithfulness, your strength. Lord, we thank you for giving us this day of rest. We thank you that we can set aside not just our labor, but also our worries and our fears and our struggles. And that we could rest in our Father's presence. Surrounded by our brothers and our sisters. Who with us have been adopted as your children in Christ. We pray that you would refresh us indeed. Reorienting us. By reminding us who we are. What is our truest identity. And therefore what is our purpose and where is our strength. Pray that you would grant to each one here the understanding and the refreshment and the challenge that we need. That we might go from this place knowing that we have been in your presence, refreshed by your word, filled with your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have called to us through your word and spirit, that you have not left us to figure things out on our own, but have provided every last detail of what we need. Lord, there are so many who haven't experienced that. Multitudes who know their misery, but who smile and put on a happy face 
even in their desperation, not knowing where escape from misery can be found, not willing to acknowledge that they need your help. Father, we pray that you would raise up many to go forth telling them the truth and that you would send your spirit before them to prepare the hearts of those who will hear. We pray that for Brother Zeckfeld and the work in Toronto. I pray that you would refresh and strengthen Tony and his fellow office bearers there, that you would allow them to be faithful and joyful and energetic in the work to which they have been called. And we pray that you would provide for them all that they stand in need of, from a second pastor to a new building to the wisdom to know what to say to the people who walk in the door. And we pray, Father, for other similar works. There are so many places where the gospel is not being regularly proclaimed and where multitudes are dying for lack of knowledge. We pray that you would raise up your church, that you would send forth workers into the harvest, and that you would allow us to take part in that work through our prayers, through our contributions, through our time. We ask that you would show us how we can do that, how you would have us minister, both formally in the planting of churches and sending of missionaries, but also informally in our own lives, in our own circle of acquaintances, that you would show us to whom we might minister and how we might lead them to know the Lord. We pray, Father, for the, the work of Reform Mission Services. We thank you for, uh, for that organization and for the, the work that it does. We thank you that you have given uh, a number of our people opportunity to work with RMS through task and through disaster relief services. We pray for Kel and Beth down in Florida and their team down there. We pray also for this group going to the Dominican Republic. We ask that you would keep them safe and that you would enable them to do the work that would lead others to see the mercy and the love of Christ. And Father, we ask that you would be with our state and our nation this day. Increasingly, our people have turned away from you. A country that once was described as a Christian nation, where Christ was openly confessed in the halls of government increasingly has seen a secularism, a, an exalting of man to the place that ought to be held only by God. Father, we pray that you would lead our nation in repenting of this and that you would enable our leaders in the legislature, in the executive branch, in the judiciary to recognize that they are not Sovereign in and of themselves. And that they do not owe their position to their own power and 
prestige and politicking, but that they have been set in their places by your sovereign hand, and that there they are called to exercise their authority on your behalf, upholding those who do well, enforcing the law of the land to which they have sworn allegiance, and punishing those who do evil as you have defined evil. Father, we pray that you would bless with wisdom and with humility our governor and her cabinet, our president and the many people who labor under him, our senators and representatives both in Lansing and in Washington, our judges from the local magistrate up to the Supreme Court. We ask that you would watch over and guide each of them. And where they refuse to bow the knee, we pray that you would remove them or transform them. And that you would cause a great transformation to occur within the halls of government in our nation. For unless their hearts change, the laws and the direction of our nation, we fear will continue to deteriorate into lawlessness and godlessness. Father, we pray that you would raise up champions of truth and righteousness among our leaders who would fight manfully against the atrocity of abortion, against the institutional corrupting of children through the open selling and publicizing of sin and wickedness. We pray that you would cause our nation to learn to repent and therefore we ask, Lord, that you would fill your church with conviction that we would lead the nation in bowing the knee before you and confessing our rebellion and our fault and our failure and our, our silence in the face of evil. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to shine as a bright light before this land, leading them to the one who is the source of all light, your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we bring before you too the needs of individuals in our congregation and among our families. We pray for uh, Peter Chapkus as he prepares for deployment to Europe. We ask that you would uh, guide him and protect him and strengthen him as well as his fellow soldiers. We pray, Father, for those who are uh, struggling with health issues, uh, particularly those who are dealing with chemotherapy and other cancer treatments. And also, uh, we think of Marge Vanderveen as she recovers from her fall and, and experiences a deterioration in her health. We pray that you would grant her the comfort and the strength she needs. Lord, there are so many other cares and concerns that weigh upon us. 
We ask that you would meet our needs day by day, moment by moment, and that you would use us to express your love, to demonstrate your compassion to one another in the midst of our struggles and trials. And when one is brought low, Lord, we pray that you would move the others around him to come and lift him up, strengthen him and support him, to admonish where necessary, to encourage where opportunity arises. And as we look to your word this evening and what it speaks to us concerning your spirit, we pray, Father, that you would would use that word to remind us that we are never alone, that through the spirit you are always with your people to strengthen and to guide and to encourage and to comfort. In That knowledge, we pray that you would send us from this place this evening, comforted indeed, with the knowledge that you will never leave us or forsake us. Now we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to do that, to look to uh, God's Word as it speaks to us about the Holy Spirit... uh, Let's stand and sing together. We're going to sing Psalm 36, Selection B, stanzas 5 through 9. 36B, stanzas 5 through 9. Well, our text is Lord's Day 20 in our catechism, but I'd like to read with you first from 1 Corinthians, I didn't write a new chapter, it's 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Now, this is, um, as Paul is 
talking to the church in Corinth. If you know the book of, or the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know that it's filled with some pretty pointed instruction, right? They had gone astray in a number of ways. They were really struggling. And so at the start, he reminds them who they are. He reminds them in chapter 1. They're not united by Paul, right? They're not his super fans who were won over by his brilliant oratory, nor are they the movers and shakers of the world. In fact, they're the weak of the world. They're the ones who are not impressive in the eyes of the world, and that's Paul too. He didn't come to them with brilliant oratory. He didn't come to them with signs and wonders. He came with the simple, straightforward gospel of Christ. And in that gospel, they found life. They found transformation. They found everything they needed. But now, in chapter 2, he reminds them that they didn't find that because they were so smart. Or because they were so wise or so insightful. It came from God. That gift of salvation, that gift of discernment of the gospel. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Now it's in the light of that that we read Lord's Day 20 which is brief, exceedingly brief. One question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? And the answer is pointed, straightforward. First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. And second, that He is given also to me, so that through true faith, He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me 
forever. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, now and again, now and again I hear the complaint, the concern, that our Heidelberg Catechism pays insufficient attention to the Holy Spirit. After all, Lord's Day 20 seems to stand alone in directly addressing the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Whereas the work of Jesus is discussed from Lord's Day 11 to 19, not to mention prior to that in Lord's Days 5 and 6 especially, and after that as we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then of course the work of God the Father and the nature of God the Father, well we look at that in uh, rather extensively in Lord's Days 9 and 10, but also in the section on gratitude when we talk about how we're to live before God, when we talk about how we're to pray about God, well that tells us a lot about who God is and what He's like and, and what He likes from us. Do we ignore the Spirit? Well, I believe we do not. Because while Lord's Day 20 introduces an explicit discussion of who the Spirit is and what He does, that discussion continues through Lord's Days 21 and 22. And the import and the effect of the Spirit's work are discussed throughout the Catechism from Lord's Day 1 through Lord's Day 52. In truth, our forefathers filled this catechism with references and allusions to the mighty and essential work of the Holy Spirit because they understood that we cannot live as Christians, we cannot even become Christians apart from the work of the Spirit. He's the one who draws us, He's the one who dwells with us, He's the one who teaches us and preserves us and protects us right up to the end when He ushers us into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we're lost. And that's demonstrated by the fact that His work is sprinkled throughout this device we use to teach one another about who God is. And that's appropriate. That there's a little, just a little bit of explicit instruction. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? But a whole lot of illusion, a whole lot of, of uh, implications spread throughout because that's how the Spirit works. Isn't it? Throughout the Bible. There's really not many places that focus on the Spirit. Because the work of the Spirit, the passion of the Spirit, is to draw us to the Father through faith in the Son. He's that one who loves to work behind the scenes, shining the spotlight on another. And so we see his work in the same way in our catechism. But the fact is, it's by the work, it's by the presence of the Holy Spirit that God gives his people comfort. And so that's what we're going to consider for just a bit this evening. How God gives us the comfort in the person of the Spirit. God gives us the comfort of his own personal presence. And we see that in two particular ways. First of all, how he uses the Spirit to rescue us from the sorrow of sin's isolation. 
That's our first point. But to get there, we have to start with the basics and recognize that the Holy Spirit is in fact God. That's been a point that has been denied or twisted by no small number of heretics and false teachers over the years. They want to say that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're just talking about, uh, you know, we're just talking about the thoughts of God. Or we're talking about, you know, a particular way that Jesus works without being seen. That's wrong. As we saw when we looked at Lord's Day 8 and the Trinity, the triunity of God, our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're three distinct persons who together comprise one true living God. And the Holy Spirit, being a person within the Trinity, is truly and fully God from the very start of the Bible. We see how God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit was there exercising the power and the authority and the oversight of God Himself. Throughout the Old Testament we see those kinds of allusions to God's Spirit. He sent His Spirit to Saul and then later withdrew the Spirit. He sent His Spirit to David to equip His servant to to lead in a way that was after the after the intent, after the character of God Himself. David couldn't do that on his own. But it was only by the Spirit of God who dwelt in him and with him to equip him that David was able to do the work to which God called him. And later on, David David cried out in that justly famous psalm, Psalm 139, and said, Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He recognized that in the presence of the Spirit is the presence of God Himself. And he answers his question, there's nowhere. There is nowhere in all the creation I can go to escape from your Spirit, to escape from God Himself. You see, wherever the Spirit is, there God is. And there God's people have comfort. And so in our our reading from uh, 1 Corinthians 2... Paul says that the essence of a man cannot truly be known except by the spirit of the man. The spirit of the man is his soul. It's his inner life. You can't separate that from the man himself. It's coessential with his very being. And likewise, he says in verse 11, So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit is one with God. He is coessential to his very being. And so at the end of the chapter, Paul can say that the Spirit conveys the mind of Christ. See, the Spirit is God, 100%. And that's important for us kids. That's important for us to recognize. Because that means through the Spirit, God can comfort and rescue us in the way that we need. It's a comfort that the Holy Spirit begins to provide by showing us our need for Him. The Spirit is the one who works to convict our hearts of sin. This morning, in our assurance of pardon, we were reminded, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And yet, in our natural state, before God began to work within us, not only would we have continued to persist in our sin... But we'd be utterly, we, 
I was about to say we would be utterly blind to, but no, we would utterly blind ourselves to the reality and the destructiveness of our sin. Look at what it says in Romans 1. Men know in their hearts that God exists. They know in their hearts that they're, they're created and designed to serve Him, but they do everything they can to deny that knowledge and to continue in their sin, to continue in their rebellion. That's what people do. They comfort themselves in their sin and they find false gods to justify it. They worship and serve the creation rather than the Creator. Because they don't want to, in their sin, in their rebellion, they don't want to serve the Lord. And so the first work that the Spirit does for us, He convicts us. He shows us that the way that we're living is not okay. That's not just for bums that live on the street, for drug addicts, for convicts in prison. Oh, I'm glad I'm not like those folks. No, that's all of us. The most straight-laced and cleaned up among us is in the same place as that drug addict or that, or that murderer in prison. Every single one of us deserves hell. Every single one of us deserves the scorn of God. And the Holy Spirit has to come and work in our hearts and show us, you're no better, you're no less filthy, you're no more worthy of God's love. You are condemned in yourself. Utterly and completely miserable in your rebellion. He begins to convict us of the ugliness of our sin and then he sends us the word of God which makes it explicit. For most of us, I suspect that happened in these pews or ones very much like them. Maybe we had heard the preaching of the word many, many times. But then all of a sudden the spirit worked and it clicked. The spirit opened our hearts and allowed us to truly hear and to recognize that he's talking about me. That when he says that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, and suddenly the Holy Spirit makes you see that he's talking to me. That's me. And I have no hope in myself. I have no hope if I keep walking down this path. He reveals it. He he, he removes the blinders. He refuses to allow us to pretend that all is well. And then he shows us our weakness. What am I going to do about it? How am I going to fix it? How am I going to overcome it? Most people, they, they just resolve to be better. I'm just going to be better. I'm going to do what I can to, be a, to, to improve myself and to improve the people around me. And, and if I'm better than most of them, well, surely God will grade on a curve, but He won't. And so the Holy Spirit allows us to see that He won't grade on a curve. It's all or nothing. It's absolute righteousness, absolute holiness, absolute guiltlessness, or nothing at all. Nothing short of perfection will allow us through those pearly gates. He shows us our absolute, utter weakness. And then he shows us the alternative. Now we won't accept that. Unless the Holy Spirit is at work within us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man 
wallowing in his sin and rebellion, depending always and only on himself. He might be surrounded by the things of God. He might see the worship of God's people every single week. He might see all around him people who are being transformed by the work of God. He might hear the Bible being read, but as long as the Spirit is not at work within him, as long as he's dependent only on himself, it makes no sense to him. He doesn't get it. It doesn't click. But when the Spirit begins working, suddenly it does. And we see the radical misery of sin, which really is a radical isolation. Sin at root is rebellion against God. First John says that sin is lawlessness. And when we rebel against God, our sin, our rebellion isolates us from Him. We can't enter His presence except in judgment. And because we are rebelling against God, isolated from God, we're also rebelling against and isolated from those who are made in His image. And that leaves us alone. Why is it that people plunge so quickly and easily into depression? It's because they feel alone. There's no one to help. There's nowhere to turn. The Spirit shows us that. Shows us we have, we have no way out except by turning to the Lord. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit who shows us that secret and hidden wisdom from God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And that's what He does. Having shown us our weakness, having shown us the misery and isolation of sin, He teaches us to want something more and then he brings us into the presence of the gospel. And the gospel, which we may have heard a hundred, two hundred times before that, suddenly it makes sense. Paul says in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. I remember when it clicked as a minister. I mean, I knew this academically. But I was always so concerned to make sure that I said everything that needed to be heard by this person in just the way they needed to hear it so that they would have every reason to respond to Christ and suddenly it clicked. It made sense. I can't say anything that will convince a sinner to turn to Christ. Only God can do that. Now, that doesn't mean that we can say just anything to him, but, but it does mean that the most well-reasoned argument will fall flat. The most perfectly stated defense of Christ will mean nothing to them unless the Holy Spirit works in their hearts to allow them to understand the things freely given to us by God. But when the Spirit works within them, all of a sudden they get it. All of a sudden they see, I need to trust in Christ and in Him alone. 
to forgive me of all my sins. I need to trust in Christ and in Him alone to make us make me righteous in the sight of God. I need to trust in Christ because no one else can make me holy. I need to trust in Christ and turn from my sins, not because that'll earn me anything, but because that is the only way I can show Him I'm thankful. And suddenly they get it. All those things they've heard, all those things they are hearing, it all makes sense, it all fits in, and they begin to become passionate about trusting the Lord. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Understand, there is nothing any one of us can say or do to make that happen. That doesn't mean don't teach your kids. That doesn't mean don't catechize one another. It just means that it won't be effective until the Holy Spirit works. But when it works, when He comes, I've had people come up to me after a sermon where I thought I did pretty poorly and say, wow, that was exactly what I needed to hear. No, that was what the Holy Spirit applied to your heart. And he does it for every one of us. It's so amazing. And it's so absolutely essential. It's only, it's only when the Spirit works in that way to soften our heart, to reveal to us the truth of God's Word, that we can say with Paul, I was washed, I was sanctified, I was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of my God. And you know, when He does that, He doesn't just provide forgiveness I alluded to it a minute ago. He also brings us into the fullness of the righteousness and holiness of Christ so that God looks on us and He sees everything that Jesus has done. God looks on us and He sees the completed work of Christ equipping us, qualifying us to enter fully into His presence. Paul marvels at this in Romans 9 at how unexpected and wonderful this work is. The people of Israel, he says... They worked hard trying to be righteous in God's sight. They, they labored day and night to be perfectly obedient. As a matter of fact, they even, they even drew lines around the lines. God said, don't do these things and do these things. And they said, okay, well, if we're not going to do these things, we'll even go farther, right? God said, don't take my name in vain. They said, we just won't use his name, right? They, just, they went even farther. And yet they failed to obtain that righteousness. Because they were relying on themselves. And when we rely on ourselves, we can't do it. But, but, he says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. The righteousness that is by faith. You see, that's what the Spirit gives us. He shows us, yeah, I can't do it. If it's up to me, I'm lost. But if I trust in Christ, then he has already done it all, right? Chapter 10 of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the Spirit convinces us that is the truth. And therefore I need to believe, therefore I need to confess, therefore I need to rest in Christ alone. And as we do, He removes all that isolation of sin. Suddenly we who once hated God and did everything we could to ignore Him. People who, who fervently defended 
evolution because it gave an explanation of everything existing without pointing to the true God who made it all. Suddenly they want to see the evidence that surrounds them that says God made it all, God designed it all, and God uses it all to bring Himself glory. They don't want to be isolated from God anymore. They want that communion. They want to spend time in prayer. They want to spend time reading God's Word. They want to know the One who has saved them. And not just God. These people who were willing to trust no one, willing to help no one, willing to enter into relationships with no one, suddenly that isolation melts as they begin fostering that relationship with with the Father. They begin fostering that relationship with their neighbors, with their friends, with their families. It is no surprise, it should be no surprise, that unbelievers' family lives are an utter and absolute train wreck. Of course it is. It's a reflection of their train wreck of a relationship with God. But the Holy Spirit, when He brings us forgiveness, He also begins reordering our relationships with men as a reflection of what He has done between us and God. He rescues us from the sorrow of sin's isolation. And that leads to the second point that we need to see here, that by His presence, the Holy Spirit restores to us the joy of Christian reconciliation. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God, and therefore when He comes to us, it is God who comes. In time, at the end of time as we know it, all men will stand before God. Many of them will come trembling. Many of them will come begging for the mercy that they didn't desire in life. But for us, whom today the Holy Spirit comes to visit, on that day we will approach God not with trembling and not with condemnation, but with mercy and with love and and with conviction that God is worthy of all our praise and honor and thanksgiving. Because He has already restored to us the joy of reconciliation. He does that. He does that not just through the gospel, but through all that flows from the gospel. Jesus promised as he was preparing to go to the cross, John 14, that after he ascended, he and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And he says there in John 14, 23, My Father, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And a little before that, he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. For all who believe in Jesus, we have the closest possible relationship with God. Now, it takes us time to recognize that. It takes time for the fruits of that to grow. But when the Holy Spirit comes and works in us the faith that saves us, he stays there. And Jesus says that when he's In you, it is God who is within you. We will come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because God's divinity is undivided. And therefore, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God Himself is with you. It doesn't matter where you go, what you do. That's a little sobering, isn't it? When you're in worship, God is with you. Obviously, everybody says amen. When you're contemplating that temptation... And convincing yourself that maybe it's not so bad. God is with you. When you're hanging out with those folks from church, God is with you, obviously, of course. But also when you're 
hanging out with that other crowd. He's there. He's with you. And it goes even farther. Because he's not just with you. He's fostering a relationship between you and the Father that is intimate. When I was young, when I was a teenager, I had a friend who um, got very uh, convicted uh, as a member of a Baptist church. And uh, it was a Baptist church everybody knew about um, because they liked to proclaim their faith pretty broadly, especially at one particular busy intersection. They'd go out and they would uh, wave their thick King James Bibles and preach hellfire and damnation to all who did not turn to Jesus Christ. It was very winsome. Um, and, uh, and they had a big stack of tracts, each one of them, warning about the damnation toward which everyone was going. He got pretty good at it, this friend of mine. Um, he could quote all kinds of verses about why you need to turn to Christ or you're going to burn in hell. Uh, but what struck me after listening, and it was, it was funny, I went to his church a couple times because I wanted to hear what he was hearing. And it struck me that their gospel was very narrow. Now, at the time, I, there was a lot I didn't know. I was, I was just starting to learn too. But it felt like their gospel was very narrow. If you don't receive Jesus, you're going to burn in hell forever. If you do receive Jesus, you get to go to heaven. That's as far as they went. But folks, that's an anemic gospel. That's just the tip. I mean, that's true, but it's so narrow. It's not even one slice of the pie. It's, it's one sliver. God promises that those who turn to Christ, he will adopt as his children. I mean, listen, listen to Romans 8. How glorious is this? All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Children of God. There is no Muslim out there who will look at Allah and say, He's my Father and He delights in me. No, he's terrified of Allah. He merely hopes without any confidence that God will overlook his sins and welcome him into heaven. That's why they're so eager to become martyrs. That's the one certainty, the, the one certain way they can die and be sure they'll end up in heaven. Everything else, it's kind of just a hope. They're not positive. But we are. Because through Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are assured that we are sons of God. If the Spirit is at work within you, then you know that you are a son, you are a daughter of God, and He delights in you. And He manifests that by, by turning every detail of your life in a way that's going to bless you, in a way that's going to help you. Isn't that an amazing comfort? When you're going through that dark valley, when you're hearing that very difficult news, when you wonder how it could all go so very wrong, to know that your father is calling all the shots, is turning all the situations, and he's doing it for your good. When you were little, you didn't understand all the things your parents did. Well, why can't I hang out with that kid? Well, why can't I jump off that cliff into the lake? Well, why can't I? Because I know better. Trust me. 
Trust me that I have your best interests in mind. Trust me that I know what's good for you. Now, our parents were imperfect in it, but God's absolutely perfect. And so sometimes he leads us in ways that we don't understand. We don't see how it could possibly be good. But he knows better than we do. He sees the whole picture. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he's able to lead every last detail in the way that will best bless us. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes to make that adoption real. He brings the presence of the Father to you. He gives you assurance of the Father's love. He leads you in beginning to obey the Father, in beginning even to delight in the Father's commands. That's His work, and that's utterly essential. And in, as part of that, He gives us guidance. What earthly father is there who, who doesn't try to guide his children? Now, we do it imperfectly. Sometimes... Sometimes I've given my, one of my kids advice that's, that wasn't the best. Oops. We do that because we're not perfect, but God is. He knows exactly what we need to do in every situation to make it turn out for the best. And he knows that if we do the other thing, it'll turn out badly. And that too will be good for us because we'll get to see that disobeying God hurts. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that. He's the one who causes us to desire to read God's Word. He's the one who allows us not only to understand what it means, but what it means in our lives. He's the one who convicts us that if I disobey this clear command, it's going to hurt. And He's the one who allows us to trust God enough to do the really hard thing He commands even when we don't want to. That's the work of the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, that is the work that we cannot live without. This is what it means to live the Christian life. To live in communion with God, the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake. Church life is important to the Christian life, right? But your identity should not be centered around, I belong to Grace United Reformed Church. Any more than your identity should be, I'm an American. Your identity should be, I am a child of God. Now, he gave you Grace United Reformed Church as a gift to to assist you in growing, to assist you in drawing close to him. But the heart of your identity is, I am a new creation in Christ. I am a son or I am a daughter of God. And if that's your identity, then the Holy Spirit is going to help you grasp what that means. He's going to help you see the importance of spending time reading the instruction of your Father and learning what He's done to redeem you. He's going to convince you of the importance of spending time on your knees asking God for help and confessing His goodness. He's going to convince you of the importance of spending time with your siblings in the Lord and taking their wise advice when they call you to walk back out of that path that you shouldn't be walking on or to walk in that path that you haven't yet started. He's going to convince you of the wisdom that you lack and in the process draw you closer to the Father whom you've just begun to love. That's the work of the Spirit. And His work is intimately bound up with our truest identity as sons and daughters of God. 
brothers and sisters, God, He loved us enough to send His Son to deliver us from sin, to ensure that we would get to heaven, but He loved us more than that. He loved us so much that He came to us and began transforming us and gave us the assurance that we will never, ever, ever be apart from Him. Where shall I go from your spirit, he says? Or where shall I hide from your presence? There's nowhere. There is nowhere you might go. There is nothing you might do that can separate you from God who has called you, from God to whom you, by his power, have turned. So remember that. In the dark of night, remember that in the struggling time. Remember that when you're hurting and it feels like everyone has turned their back on you. Remember that He has not and He will not and that He is there. If only you'll call out to Him. Jesus said to His disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in the Spirit, He has. And He will never, ever let us fall away. What a blessing. What a comfort to know that God has given us the comfort of His own perfect presence. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we so desperately need exactly what You through Your Spirit have given. I pray that You would help us to recognize the immensity of the value of that gift. And that you would help us to to perceive the work that you're doing within us through your spirit. So that we would have that comfort of apprehending your nearness. Our intimacy with you. The passion with which you love us. And Father, we pray that throughout this coming week. You would enable us to wrestle with that reality and to embrace the comfort of your perfect presence. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's acknowledge the goodness and the grace that God showed to us in sending His Spirit as we stand and sing together number 391. Come, O come, thou quickening Spirit. Number 391.
Our offering this evening is for the Institute for Reform Biblical Counseling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given this resource to your church. That in our times of difficulty and trial, we might be able to find godly wisdom to help us through. We pray that you would bless uh, IRBC and make it to continue to be faithful. And bless our offering, that it might be not just an encouragement to them, but that it might be glorifying unto you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this evening is Psalm 139b. 139b, we'll sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, 6, and 7.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you all peace. Amen.